As we are looking into today, as many of you know, this is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is connected directly to uh, the date for Easter, because it's always the, the Sunday the, before Easter, and it's a celebration of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, which, which is a triumphant interest, in, entrance, though there's, a, there's an element of, of pushback that Jesus has to deal with. And then, of course, you go through the week, things turn on Jesus. Uh, you have the crucifixion on Friday, the resurrection we celebrate on Sunday. And even though this is a date, which is uh, an event that is recognized throughout the church, be it the, the Western Church or Eastern Church, uh, you may know that between the Orthodox Church and uh, what we call the Western Church, uh, the date is different. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story as to why the date is different. Now, before the Council, there was this thing called the Council of Nicaea, which was one of the first times that the church leaders after they had been persecuted by the Roman Empire for hundreds of years, had the ability to get together, and it was actually under this emperor named Constantine, and work out some issues that they had. And one of the issues, the famous one from the Council of Nicaea, is really trying to understand who exactly Jesus is as the Word of God made flesh. And so this is the, the main thing that came out of the Council of Nicaea. But they also came up with a, with a date to celebrate the resurrection. Because up to before this time, before 325, the, the Christian churches, because there wasn't much connection between them due to persecution, they tended to celebrate the resurrection at various times throughout the year. And so the council came together and they said, this is the date that we're going to celebrate the resurrection as a church worldwide. And uh, it's, it's a very uh, convoluted uh, formula they came up with. It's to be the first Sunday that occurs after the first full moon following the vernal equinox, but always after Jewish Passover. Yeah, that's pretty simple, right? No problem. We'll just put that on the calendar. <laughs> and, and they recognized that it was kind of a convoluted, difficult formula. But they wanted it to always be after Jewish Passover, though, because if you know the story, you know, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem because it's the Passover time. So it wouldn't make sense to have Easter before the Passover. But because the vernal equinox is, is a kind of a naturalistic measure and it's kind of all over the place, they said the vernal equinox, we're going to say, is always March 21st. So then the formula was it's going to be the first Sunday that occurs after the first full moon following March 21st. Because March 21st would always lead to it being after the Passover. And everything was fine. Everyone celebrated uh, Palm Sunday and Easter on the same day. But if you know anything about church history, or, or, or if you don't, because most people really don't follow it, I find it fascinating. But in 1054, there's this thing called the Great Schism. And basically what happened is that the Western church, and when you think Western at that time, it was just the Catholic Church. So it was pretty much everything that was west of Greece. And the Eastern Church, which was Greece and, and at the time Constantinople, they split and they excommunicated each other. There was, a, there was a ambassador sent from the Western Church to the Eastern Church. He walked up into the, it was a, the Cathedral of St. Sophia at the time in modern-day uh, Istanbul, which is now a mosque. And he laid this, this uh, writ of excommunication from the Pope to the whole Eastern Empire. 
over issues of the changing of the words in the Apostles' Creed and some other things, which the West had changed, not the East. So the West had made changes, and then they were upset that the Eastern Church didn't follow along. Well, the Eastern Church then turned around and said, fine, we excommunicate all of you. And that becomes this great schism. But we still celebrated Easter and Resurrection on the same time. But then in 1582, the Catholic Church, and at that time the Protestant movement was just beginning, they switched from the Julian calendar to this Gregorian calendar. And that shifted the dates. And the Eastern Church said, we are not going to shift. This is why they're called the Orthodox. Orthodox means kind of stuck, not necessarily stuck, in the ways that were originally established. So when, you, when someone does something that is unorthodox, like that person has unorthodox thinking, it means that they don't think in the traditional way that everyone else thinks. So if you're orthodox, you're very much in the tradition. And the Eastern Church said, this date was established by us in the Council of Nicaea. We're not going to just switch calendars and change. And so the West said, fine, we're going to do it on this day. The East said, we're going to stick with the, with the being the Julian calendar. And to this day, that's why you have this difference in the dates of Easter. Also, Christmas is a different time in the Eastern Church versus the Western Church. And as you know, I find this whole history fascinating. But I have to admit, I kind of find it fascinating in the same way I find watching videos about airplane disasters fascinating. You know, there's kind of a morbid fascination uh, at the whole thing, which is kind of maybe a terrible thing to admit that I like to watch videos about airplane disasters. <laughs> but I just kind of find it morbidly fascinating. And, uh, and I find church history to be kind of the same way. And when I, I've said in the past that the miracle of the church is that it still exists and that there are still parts of the church that teach the scripture and seek to glorify God, I'm not saying that in any kind of exaggerated way. It is a miracle. Because the church has always had this, this element of humanity in it. And humanity is kind of a necessary disaster when it comes to the church. And I'd say it's a necessary disaster because people, ever since the beginning of time, but pretty much, you know, certainly since the beginning of the church, have been bringing into the church their sins, their issues. Most of those sins seem to, to center around the, the, the big three of greed and power and sex. And it started from the very beginning when you see Ananias and Sapphira, you know, claiming to sell a field and give all the money to the church to just, you know, in the last few months when a very celebrated leader in, the, in Christendom, after he passed away, it was found out that, that he had carried on multiple sexually abusive relationships. And it continues, and, and this, this sin that comes into the church is a disaster. It's a disaster. It, it smears the name of Christ, and it really weakens the, the testimony of the church. Unfortunately, it's necessary in the sense that humanity is necessary to have a church. You know, I sometimes joke the church would be easy if it weren't for all the people. But that, the punchline of the joke is there is no church without the people. The church isn't the building, the church is the people. And so we're kind of a necessary disaster. And it's just the way it is. And this is where we are under the grace of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ came to change the spiritual condition of humanity, to bring us from a place of death into life and to establish a community which would carry on his mission to reach the lost and make disciples. Which is why Jesus' last words, his very last words to the community that was, that was going to be established around his name was this. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And this is where, as a church, as IBCD, our church, we have this, our mission statement, is, which expresses our reason for existing, is to reach the lost and to make disciples. We take that directly from this commandment from Christ. Go and make disciples. Go into all the nations. Actually, at IBCD, though, all the nations come to us, which is very convenient. And, uh, and we can teach them, and then they go out. You know, it's, it's, IBCD is a, 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 it's not a huge church, but it's very strategic in that many of you come from all, all these different countries. And if God, you know, you end up going to different places because a lot of you are kind of the movers and shakers in your lives, you know, as you go to different places or maybe as you go back to your home countries, you know, something that, that you gain from us, gain from this community of faith will be taken with you. That's the hope, anyways. So as I've told you before, we're going to be looking at the, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And uh, the triumphal entry is really one of the few times Jesus is actually celebrated by almost everybody, except for the religious leaders, who we've talked about in the past have some problems with Jesus, especially because Jesus makes some big statements. And we're going to jump ahead in Matthew, obviously, to talk about the Palm Sunday. And then as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, when we come back around to some of these verses, we'll dig into it a little bit more deeply. But today we're going to kind of take an overview on some of these things. And as we're going to start, we're going to actually start in Matthew 20, which is before the actual triumphant entry is, is discussed. But if you remember, if I've told you in the past that the whole chapter and verse system, while it is brilliant and it helps us to find things in the Bible, for example, we could say, you know, if you want to know what the Great Commission is, it's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's, it's, it's easy to find because your Bibles have all these chapters and verses numbers in there. But those weren't original. When, God, when Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he didn't say chapter 28, verse 1, and then write it. Those were added later to, to help us navigate the Bible. The problem with it is that sometimes, and I've told you this before, it can guide our reading. And we can, we can stop at thought ideas that really aren't meant to stop because that's where the chapter stops. And that's a good example here in that this whole story about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem actually begins the chapter 4 in Matthew chapter 20. And it says this, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles means the non-Jews, the Romans in this case, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So here we see Jesus telling his disciples clearly what is going to happen as they enter into Jerusalem. There is no mystery as to where this is all leading. At least you would think there's no mystery. He clearly states, we are going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, which at that time they understand, he's talking about himself. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be arrested, tortured, killed. And on the third day, he'll be raised to new life. He couldn't be any clearer. And I don't know how you would respond to someone that you adored, someone you really had hope in, someone you saw as being a leader or mentor, going to bring in a new age. If that person told you, I'm going to go into this town, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, and I'm going to be killed, but on the third day I'm going to rise again, I don't know what questions you would have, 
or how you would respond to that. But this is how his disciples respond to it, at least some of it. This is the very next verse to understand. He's just told them he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be killed, and on the third day he's going to rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, and we learn in Matthew, it's the mother that begins the conversation. The Gospel of Mark just brings it straight from James and John, but we kind of learn that there's more to it here. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down, asked a favor of, of him. What does you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So understand this. Her response, and I think James and John were with her on this, to Jesus telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and, we're, and in the, within this next week I'm going to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. Their response is, make sure that my two sons have the number one and number two place in your kingdom. What is, is that the first thing you would think of if you were told by someone that you cared about deeply that he's going to be arrested, tortured, and killed? Would you go, well, just make sure that I have my, the number one place in your kingdom. And Jesus quite appropriately says, you don't know what you're asking. And I think it's more than just they don't know what they're asking as far as, you know, number one and number two place may not be as wonderfully easier or, or full of glory and luxury as you think. But I also think what he's saying is, I just told you I'm going to go be crucified. And your main concern is making sure your place is established. Number one, number two. And then he says to him, and I think Jesus is like looking at them like, did you even just hear what I said? He goes, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? In other words, can you be arrested? Are you willing to be tortured? Are you willing to be crucified? And you can see where their brains are when they go, we can. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of a bizarre exchange that takes place. And Jesus says, Jesus says to him, well, you know what? You will indeed drink from my cup. Because pretty much all the disciples eventually go through a time of persecution and a death, a martyr's death. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. And then we have this interesting verse here. Then the ten heard about this. They were indignant with the two brothers. Now, why do you think they were indignant? Indignant. Why were they that way? Were they, Jesus is going to die and you need to support him? Or, we're going to be go he's going to be going through a tough time and you need to be there for him. Is that what they were indignant about? Well, if the conversation that, which he then has to have with the disciples directly following this is in the indication, it's all about they're mad because they feel like their place is under threat. Because Jesus pulls them aside and says to them, hmm, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers, and Jesus called them together and said, Listen, guys, you know that the, ruler of the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority of the, over them. In other words, Jesus has to immediately have a discussion about leadership with them. So what are they indignant about? Are they indignant that these two disciples were insensitive to the trial that Jesus was going to be facing? No. They were indignant because they felt like these two disciples were trying to get ahead of them when it comes to their place in the kingdom of God, their 
their place of status in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, wow. All right, listen, guys. When it comes to ruling, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And they, they're top down. They tell them what to do. And he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man, and I imagine he emphasized that, son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want to make it clear as we're talking about the triumphant entry, what takes place right before it. Jesus announces that he is going to be crucified. He's going to not just be crucified. He's going to be arrested, flogged, which means whipped, and then crucified. On the third day, he'll rise again. The response to that is that there's this complete disconnect in his disciples. All they care about is, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to my position in the church? What does that mean to my status? What does it mean about me? Me, 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 me. And then Jesus says, look, leadership, which you guys are going to be lifting, taking up pretty soon here, when it comes to continuing the mission of the community, leadership is not about lording over others and telling them what to do. Leadership is about serving, just as the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And put yourself in Jesus' place here. We talk about this being the triumphant entry and all that, but after nearly three years of working with these disciples, not just these 12, but also the extended discipleship, which included people like Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and, and the Zebedee's mother, and there's some other women around it as well. The, the, the discipleship, you have the 12 apostles, but there's a larger group following. After spending all this time with them, he's heading to the most important moment of his ministry, the moment which he has been preparing for since before the world was created, the moment which will allow for the redemption of humanity, the, the end of the, the tyranny of sin over humanity, and the possibility for new life in Christ, this moment that he's moving forward to, the moment that he tasks his disciples to remember forever through communion, the moment that is demonstrated within baptism, as he's heading into this moment, his disciples are still arguing about who's going to be number one and number two in the kingdom of God. His disciples aren't concerned about him at all. As he's going to this penultimate point in his ministry, in his time on earth, the, the defining moment. His disciples are arguing about who's number one, who's number two, who's going to have authority, who's going to be respected, whose status is going to be greater than the others. I can't help but think that as Jesus was, walk, was coming into this last week and he's having to give this 101 lesson to them in, in, in leadership, you know, the very basic of lessons in leadership again, because he's had this discussion with them before when they were arguing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, uh, uh, those who are the greatest in the kingdom of God will be like a child who has trust in their parent. Those of you who have trust in God in that same sort of sense will be the greatest. He's had this discussion with them before. And it's painfully obvious that they haven't got it. They don't get it. And in fact, the Gospel of John tells us as much. After the resurrection, when Peter and John go in, they're still not sure what happened here. Even though he had clearly stated, I'll be raised to life, they go in. If you read the Gospel of John, and there's actually a phrase, they, they, didn't, know. they didn't know what this was about. They didn't know what happened. 
And so, again, we'll go more deeply into the whole area of leadership and all that when we go through the Gospel of Matthew and come back to this another time. But for now, I want you to just kind of see this disconnect that is taking place in the priorities when Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and he clearly states what's going to happen, and their response is, well, what about me? So let's read now the story of going in. Then it says in chapter 20, so after this discussion and leadership, Jesus heals these two guys just kind of on the way. He does it with very little fanfare. I think he does it to show, again, that he is the promised one, and he heals them, and then we have this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and they will send it right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. We learned these are palm branches. That's why this is called Palm Sunday in other Gospels. The crowds went ahead of them, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, those children causing noise, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? In the other gospels, they complain, and Jesus says to them also, hey, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. There's lots of, when you read the gospel, you kind of have this amalgamation of things that take place. Then he left them and went to the city of Bethany. So that's kind of an interesting thing. He leaves Jerusalem goes to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. Bethany is, is the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead is a big deal going on during this time. And the Gospel of John makes that more clear, that, the, that the, the raising from the dead of Lazarus really shook people up. And that's kind of the talk of the region. The other Gospels don't, don't focus on that as much, but John very much focuses on that. So he goes back to the city of Bethany, where he had performed this miracle, where he has these friends, Lazarus and the sisters, Mary and Martha, and he stays with them. Well, he stays in the city. I'm assuming it's with them. But I wonder what Jesus was thinking that night. You know, one of the things I encourage people to do, when you read the Bible, you should read it with some kind of empathy. Kind of put yourself where the characters are at, and then kind of try and look at the world through their eyes. What was Jesus thinking that night as the, the sound of, of the cheering was still ringing in his ears? Was he hearing the, the cheering? Was he hearing the complaining of the Pharisees? 
Did it go through his mind that his disciples still didn't really seem to get what was going on? What went through Jesus' mind? He knows what's coming. And I think it's very clear to him that no one else does. His disciples, even though he's told them clearly what's coming, their mind's in a different place. The people who are shouting, Hosanna! In just less than a week, they're going to be shouting, Crucify him. And these Pharisees, at least they're consistent. <laughs> you know, They hate him from the, the moment he gets on, enters Jerusalem, and they hate him right up to the point where they crucify him. I wonder, though, uh, if I were in that place, like trying to be in that place of empathy, I would know what the Pharisees are up to. I would know that the people shouting Hosanna are probably tomorrow going to say crucify him because people are fickle. They just kind of like to follow a party. But then you have the disciples. I have to think that that was a place of concern for Jesus when he's like, wow, these guys still don't get it. This is the last week. They need to get it pretty soon. They still don't get it. And I think it had to be particularly concerning that they were all caught up in their selfish pursuits of titles and position. That the first thing that they come to after he says he's going to be crucified is make sure we have number one, number two places. And then they all start fighting over this. And you're on the way toward the biggest moment for which all of creation is centered around. And the folks that are to carry on your message in the community of faith, they're only thinking about themselves. You know, I mentioned earlier how humanity in the church is kind of a necessary disaster. And the pain and the heartache that has come from people and bring it into the church is usually because people bring in their selfishness. And of course, we, we all justify our selfishness. We all justify our selfishness through some theological way. You know, well, theologically, I'm right because and then we, we try and find some verses that make us work. Or something we just kind of feel like, well, God told me and I have this unique relationship with God which goes over the Bible. You know, God told me I can do this even though the Bible clearly says this is a sin. We tend to be self-centered. Even at our best, we tend to focus on ourselves. For example, if you look at the, our songs, and I've said this to you before, you know, my favorite hymn is this, called, this song called Blessed Assurance that Jesus is Mine. I love that hymn. I've always loved that hymn. But the chorus is, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. And I love it, but I, over the years I've come to realize that most of our worship songs are sung from the, from the perspective of being surprised at what God has done for us. And then we respond to it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I've seen this, I've tasted it, and it's, and it's from my perspective. Uh, we love Amazing Grace. I want it sung at my funeral. But Amazing Grace is kind of the same way. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And then it becomes about that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I was found. I was blind, now I see. We have a tendency to always kind of put ourselves in the center of the universe. And there's nothing wrong with it. Like, Blessed Assurance is going to always be my favorite hymn. Gonna, I, I love that we sang uh, Amazing Grace. There's, there's something about that that it's almost a transcendent hymn that people know across cultures and languages, and it just gets right to the heart of who we are. 
But very rarely do we see songs that are just purely about the attributes of Jesus. Purely about the attributes of Jesus. Because I think it's hard for us to see God and to see the world outside of ourselves being the center of it. In fact, right now, many of you sitting there today, in your brain you know that you're not the only person in existence and that I'm not just some holographic projection standing up here. But there's a part of you that pretty much thinks this whole theater of the world is centered around you and that you are the center of the universe. And you would say, no, I'm not. I know I'm not. You know it up here. But there's this part within all of us that says, I'm the center. And this is this, this weirdly kind of self-focused part of our lives that it's very difficult for us to overcome. As far as I'm concerned, I, you know, I'm the center of my universe. You're the center of your universe. But the point of in our faith in Christ, though, is that we are not the center. Jesus is the center. And it's so hard for us to understand that. There was this book that came out years ago, which was kind of like this book that everyone got, you know, excited about. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? A lot of you have. Do you remember the opening line of The Purpose Driven Life? It, it, it's not about you. Right. It says it's not about you. And that was kind of like, I remember as a pastor, uh, when The Purpose Driven Life came out, Everyone was just like, oh, they were so excited about this book. And, and there was a part of me that said, I've been preaching to you every single chapter of that book for the last 10 years. Fine. Because it's not about me. But we had to be told that in that book, the very first line, it's not about you. And it was almost like a shocking you know, revelation to some folks. It's not about me. And they liked it. And while we said it, it's not about me, there's still a part. There's a reason why he had to open that way. Because we have a tendency to think it's all about us. And I think this, this triumphant entry of Jesus is, when you read it from the Gospel of Matthew, it becomes this very clear picture that Jesus is moving on the trajectory of, of God. A trajectory that is taking him into a place where Events which were ordained before the creation of time, let alone the world, are finally coming together and culminating upon this thing called the crucifixion and, more importantly, the resurrection. That everybody else is in a different place. Even the people that were closest to him, that understood him the best, they're in a different place. They're in their own selfish place. And I'm... I hope that when we are with God in eternity, I hope that part of the, the change that comes through the final sanctification, which sanctification, which Jean mentioned this morning, is that process of growing into the holiness of Christ. I pray, because I want it out of my life too, I pray that there's this part that is finally removed, this selfish part, so that we can effortlessly and joyously embrace the notion that everything is really about Christ. And everything is really about God. And it's not about just, do I have my place of status? Did I get my reward in heaven? Have ever, has it ever crossed your mind? You kind of wonder, I wonder what I'm going to get in heaven. Do I get an island? Do I get an apartment? Do I get a mansion? Do I drive a Honda? Do I have a Bentley? All that is selfish. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know? It's all thinking about us. It's thinking about, you know, how, how we, I, I, I go through things too. So this is the challenge that I want us to have for this week. And, and this is a spiritual, this is kind of a spiritual discipline type of challenge. I'd like to ask you to seek to make this week just about Jesus. And just make it about him. And if you pray for needs, pray for someone else's needs. Just kind of set yourself aside for a while. And trust that you have brothers and sisters around you, that they will be praying for you if you're in a place of need. And just focus on Christ and on others, but not yourself. And just make that your spiritual exercise this week, to try to not focus upon self. And keep your eyes upon Christ. Make a conscious effort to put his priorities over yours. Seek to pray in a way which glorifies him because of who he is, not because of what you want him to do for you or because of what you see he's done, which is good to have thankfulness, but just about him. Sing songs if you listen to, to music and stuff that focus on the character of Christ, not, not your lack of character. Focus on what he has, not what you don't have. And be thankful. You know, there's something powerful about having a thankful heart. To look to, to what God is and who he is. And just, if you're going to be thankful about anything, be thankful about who he is. His character of grace. His character of love. His character of forgiveness. His willingness to suffer and die for us. To be humiliated for our sake. Focus on him. And let the Holy Spirit guide you through thoughts and prayers. Don't complain about next week's... Uh, Service being an hour earlier. Because we're celebrating Jesus rising from the grave. You can get out of bed. You know, just get perspective. That this is about him. And stop making it all is about yourself. And I'm preaching to myself too, by the way. I'm not just like, meh, meh, meh. I'm preaching to myself too. Stay awake with him in the garden. Spiritually, metaphorically. Remember that, that call Jesus asked for his disciples? Just stay awake with me. And they couldn't. Because they couldn't make his needs more important than their needs. Stay awake with him in the garden. Spiritually. Ride with him into Jerusalem. Stand by him at the cross instead of deserting him. And look forward to that expectation of the risen Christ knowing that there will be a new life, just as he said there would be. I pray that this week you can spend some time seeing him, really seeing him, and in that maybe get to know him just a little bit better. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you've done for us. And, you know, you, the fact that we have this Bible that tells us this amazing story with surprising details here and there. God, we just pray that it would work within us and help us to understand you better. And even right now, I'm praying in a self-centered way. You know, make me, make us understand you better. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And thank you for your grace. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you chose to bring us along. Ah, see, doing it again. Bringing us along. Lord, you are the creator. You're the one through whom all things were made. We praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for your foresight. We praise you for your grace and we praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your love. May we keep our eyes on you.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.